0: from UCSF, is going to talk to us, starting today, beyond hep C, an update on B, D, and E viruses. And Dr. Price is an assistant clinical professor of medicine at UCSF. So welcome.
1: I'd like to thank the meeting organizers for inviting me to give this talk. I know you are all here to learn more about hepatitis C treatment. What I'm here for is to remind you that there's more to viral hepatitis than hepatitis C. So for at least for the next half hour, we'll be focusing on hepatitis B, D and E. And it's not too much time. So I'll try to hit the highlights of each of these viruses. So these are our learning objectives. And we'll also start with a question. So which of the following statements is true? One, limividine is a first-line agent for treating chronic hepatitis B. Two, hepatitis D virus requires hepatitis B DNA for packaging and transmission. Or three, hepatitis E virus can be transmitted via consumption of pig liver. Um, so let 's start with hepatitis B. Uh, there are approximately three hundred and fifty million individuals who are chronically infected with hepatitis B worldwide, and worldwide it 's the leading cause of hepatitis of cirrhosis. Here in the United States, there are about 1.25 million people who are chronically infected. And as you can see on the slide that shows the global prevalence of hepatitis uh, B infection, the United States is an area that we consider to be low prevalence for hepatitis B. Less than 2% of the population is hep B infected. But as you know, there are certain high-risk groups for hepatitis B infection within the United States, including individuals with HIV. So overall, among HIV-infected individuals, the prevalence of hepatitis B co-infection is around 10%. No talk about hepatitis B is complete without reviewing the serologic markers. That's what I'll do now. The hepatitis B surface antigen is really the standard marker of infection. Its presence in the serum on two occasions, at least six months apart, is the definition of chronic hepatitis B. The hepatitis B surface antibody is the antibody to the surface antigen, and this is a marker of immunity to hepatitis B. So this will be positive in somebody who's been exposed but has cleared their infection or in somebody who has been successfully vaccinated. The hepatitis B DNA is indicative of ongoing viral replication and the levels correlate with replication and infectivity. And the hepatitis B core antibody is antibody to the hepatitis B core antigen. This can be used as a marker of prior exposure. So this will be positive in somebody who's been exposed to hepatitis B, um, regardless of whether or not they clear it or develop chronic infection. And that can be used to distinguish between somebody who has immunity because of prior vaccination versus somebody who has immunity versus prior exposure. And then finally, the hepatitis E, B, E antigen had uh, traditionally been used sort of clinically as an index of viral le- replication and infectivity. We now use the DNA more for this, um, and you can have E antigen negative disease with ongoing viral replication, and that's um, in the setting of hepatitis B, excuse me, hepatitis B uh, core promoter or pre-core mutants that either don't produce the E antigen or produce it in low amounts. So I'd like to review the complications of hepatitis B infection because they are significant. Once acutely infected, your probability of developing chronic infection depends on a variety of factors, most notably the age at which you're infected. So over 90% of infants who are infected acutely will progress to chronic disease, and that's in contrast to less than 5% of adults who are, are acutely infected. Um, The caveat here is that immunocompromised hosts who are adults are more likely to develop chronic infection, including patients who are HIV-infected at the time of their hepatitis B exposure. Once chronic infection is established, about 30% of patients will go on to develop cirrhosis. And once you have cirrhosis, you're at significantly increased risk of liver cancer, and a quarter of patients will develop decompensated liver disease within five years The only true cure for the liver cancer or decompensated liver failure is liver transplantation, and chronic hepatitis B is the sixth leading cause of liver transplantation in the United States. And the one thing I'd also point out is that individuals with hepatitis B are at an increased risk of liver cancer, even in the absence of cirrhosis. This slide summarizes the hepatitis b treatment guidelines guidelines from the various liver organizations and there are some subtle differences between the different guidelines but in general the principles are the same so when we're deciding who warrants treatment for their hepatitis b there are a few um tests that we need to have we want to know their e antigen status we want to know what their hepatitis b dna levels have been and we want to know their alt if we have a liver biopsy that gives us a lot of information, but it's of course not um, uniformly available in all of our patients with chronic hepatitis B, e-antigen DNA and ALT should be. And we divide people into e-antigen positive or e-antigen negative disease. The patients we consider for treatment with e-antigen positive disease are those who have elevated hepatitis B DNA levels. And the threshold we use, the consensus is around uh, over 20,000 IU per ml. And that's indicative of ongoing viral replication. And then patients who also have indications of ongoing inflammation as manifest by an elevated ALT. Now, the threshold that's used to determine whether or not someone should be treated based on their ALT is a little bit controversial, and it depends on who you ask. Some people say anybody with a persistently elevated ALT warrants treatment, and others say it needs to be over two times the upper limit of normal. But the general principle is the same. Ongoing viral replication with persistently elevated ALT you should consider treatment. And the same is true in e-antigen negative disease, with the difference being that the DNA threshold is lower. It's greater than 2,000. And one thing I just want to point out in this slide is that at least, excuse me, at least in the United States-based treatment guidelines, the upper limit of normal for ALT that was used for these guidelines reflects the updated upper limit of normal for ALT for healthy individuals, and that's 30 for men and 19 for women. And I point that out because many of our clinical labs use a higher threshold for the upper limit of normal. So if you're deciding whether or not to treat your patient based on these guidelines, you want to consider what their upper limit of normal was. There are seven FDA-approved treatment regimens for hepatitis B virus. I put six of them on this slide. The one that I didn't include was conventional interferon. But there's pegylated interferon, limividine, adefivir, entekivir, telbividine, and tenofivir. The advantage of pegylated interferon is that it's a fixed duration course, whereas the oral agents are um, somewhat indefinitely uh, indefinite treatment courses. Uh, as you know, lamivudine and tenofovir and tenofovir have anti-HIV activity, and we consider pegylated interferon and tenofovir or tenofovir to be first-line agents. So when do you consider pegylated interferon in your patient with chronic hepatitis B? You think about in somebody who you know um, has a higher probability of responding to pegylated interferon, and those are patients who have low hepatitis B DNA levels, who have high ALT levels, and in particular those who have genotypes A or B disease because they respond better than genotype C or D, and if they don't have advanced liver disease. And then there are other patient demographic uh, factors that you consider. Young people, particularly young women, who uh, anticipate anticipate pregnancy in the near future might be more likely to want a fixed, finite treatment course and not have to be on oral agents um, long-term or or worry about uh, oral agents during pregnancy. So there's patient preference. And then there's also the issue of concomitant hepatitis C infection, which would affect your choice. This slide shows the five-year cumulative resistance rates um, among the oral agents for hepatitis B in treatment-naive patients. And the key point here is you can see that lamivudine has a very low barrier to resistance. There's about a 70% rate of resistance at five years in people who are treated with lamivudine monotherapy. And that's in contrast to Entecavir, and which both have very high barriers to resistance, and this is one of the reasons, in addition to their potency, that they're preferred as the first-line therapy for hepatitis B treatment. I just want to point out that this is in treatment-naive patients. In patients who have a history of limavidine exposure, the barrier to resistance for intecovir is lower, for reasons that I'll explain in a few slides. And in that case, the five-year cumulative resistance rate is more around 50% for intecovir. So I have another question for you guys. We'll see if it works. Um, so you have a patient who's a 49-year-old woman with chronic hepatitis B. She sees you as a new patient. She's been on lamivudine for two years. She was E antigen positive and seroconverted to e antigen negative with undetectable hepatitis B DNA within one year. Now her labs show an ALT of 30 and a hepatitis B... Ah. Okay, Hepatitis B DNA of 4,000 IUs per mL. So what do you think is the most likely cause of her increased hepatitis B DNA? Medication non adherence virologic breakthrough due to lamivudine resistance, reinfection with a lamivudine resistant mutant, or superinfection with hepatitis delta. So we're not going to do the audience response, I think, are we? So we'll keep going, but... The answer would be uh, virologic breakthrough due to lamivudine resistance. And this slide uh, demonstrates what happens when virologic breakthrough occurs. Um, it's defined by uh, hepatitis B DNA that rises after uh, having been suppressed during, uh, during therapy. It, is, it usually precedes biochemical breakthrough. So it comes first, and then afterwards, biochemical breakthrough with ALT increase occurs. In the beginning, when resistant mutants are selected, the, um, level of DNA is is somewhat moderately increased, doesn't increase rapidly, and that's because the mutant strains typically have a diminished replication capacity, but they develop with time compensatory mechanisms that increase the replication fitness, and then you get a more severe virologic rebound, and that can precede a very severe hepatitis flare and even a decompensation. So it's very important to recognize virologic breakthrough early when it occurs in order to intervene appropriately and prevent a hepatitis flare. And I included this slide so that we could review some of the mutations that are associated with um, uh, the different oral uh, antivirals because it's helpful to know the cross-resistance cross-resistant profiles when you're deciding what agent to use in your patient who has been previously exposed. So mutations in the YMDD motif of the C domain of the hepatitis B polymerase um, confer resistance to lamivudine and telbividine as well as emtricitabine. And um, they're often associated with concomitant mutations in the the B domain, which give the mutant strains um, improved replication fitness. And tecavir, as I mentioned, has a very high barrier to resistance, and that is because resistance develops through a two-hit mechanism, so in order to develop resistance to entecavir, you need both the YMDD mutation as well as a mutation elsewhere in the hepatitis B polymerase gene. So that's why in somebody who's treatment naive, the, resista- the barrier to resistance is high in entecavir. But in somebody who has prior and exposure, the barrier to resistance is lower because they're more likely to have selected for the YMDD mutants. And this is important when you're considering your treatment regimens in patients with HIV and hepatitis B co-infection, many of whom have a history of lamivudine exposure. The recommended first line agents are tenofovir with emtricitabine, or tenofovir plus lamivudine within the antiretroviral regimen. But in some of your patients, they might have contraindications to tenofovir. In those cases, it's all right to use entecovir, but you don't wanna have them concomitantly on lamivudine because of this cross-resistance pattern. Okay, moving on to the next case. This is a 42-year-old businessman. Oh, yes. So you wanna avoid ha- uh, having somebody on entecovir and limividene at the same time, because that increases the risk of developing entecovir resistance because, they can, because of that YMDD um, motif mutation. So you wanna switch them to a non-limividene-containing uh, regimen. And then the entecovir dose is also, and somebody with limividene exposure is, is recommended a higher dose um, if, you, if they have limividene prior exposure and you're treating them with entecovir. So the next case is a 42-year-old businessman from Africa who was diagnosed with acute hepatitis B in 2006. He remained hepatitis B surface antigen positive six months later, so he had chronic infection, and he was never treated. His ALT was always less than two times the upper limit of normal, and now his ALT is 346 and AST is 178. Bilirubin and INR are normal. His hepatitis B surface antigen is positive, surface antibody negative, E antigen negative, and his hepatitis B levels, uh, his DNA, is undetectable. He reports unprotected sex with multiple partners. What is the most likely explanation for his elevated liver enzymes? Acute hepatitis B flare, acute hepatitis C infection, or superinfection with hepatitis delta virus? Are we going to try the, uh... All right, let's try it. Okay, so about um, equal between acute hepatitis C and superinfection with hepatitis delta. Um, both are, both are possibilities, certainly, that you would want to consider. You'd want to look into the risk factors that he has for acute hepatitis C. Um, there's really nothing in uh, the question panel that um, would point you necessarily one way or another, um, except this is a non-hepatitis C talk. So the correct answer is superinfection with hepatitis delta. Uh, so hepatitis Delta is a small, defective RNA virus. It requires hepatitis B surface antigen for transmission and packaging. And the clue in the prior example that it wasn't acute. Hepatitis B was not an acute hepatitis B flare is that the hepatitis B DNA was, was negative. And that's actually very common in delta infection. The hepatitis B DNA is usually negative or low because the delta suppresses the hepatitis B. This slide shows the geographic distribution of hepatitis delta. I told you earlier that about 350 million individuals are chronically infected with hepatitis B worldwide, and among them, 15 million have evidence of hepatitis delta exposure. In general, the highest rates of hepatitis D virus are in areas where hepatitis B is endemic, although that's not uniformly the case. Is hepatitis D always chronic? That's a good question that I'm about to answer right now. So the answer is no. There are two different forms of hepatitis D infection, and which form you have um, uh, kind of predicts whether or not you'll develop chronic infection. So the first form is co-infection of hepatitis B and D. So that's when you acquire both of the infections at the same exposure. And that's associated with a more severe acute hepatitis and a higher mortality compared to acute hepatitis B mono infection. And in this case, the fate of the Delta is determined by the host response to hepatitis B. So in adults, like I told you before, most adults who are exposed will clear their infection and that's the same with hepatitis B and D co-infection. The other form is hepatitis D superinfection on somebody who has chronic hepatitis B and this may manifest as an acute hepatitis in a hepatitis B carrier, and in this case, it usually results in chronic hepatitis delta infection. And the consequences of chronic hepatitis B and D co-infection are significant. It's associated with much more aggressive liver disease compared to hepatitis B mono-infection. They have a higher risk of cirrhosis and liver decompensation. Possibly liver cancer, although the data are very conflicting on that, so that certainly has not been established. But definitely higher risk of cirrhosis and liver decompensation. So this slide reviews the diagnostic markers in hepatitis delta infection. The top graph shows what happens in a case of hepatitis B and D co-infection with recovery, and the bottom shows a case of hepatitis D superinfection on somebody who's chronic hepatitis B positive, um, and they develop chronic hepatitis D co-infection. So the uh, hepatitis D IgM will be positive in acute infection. It can persist in chronic infection, though not always. If it does, it can be used as a surrogate for hepatitis D replication. The hepatitis D IgG is indicative of hepatitis D exposure. It may persist with viral clearance or it may go down with viral clearance. It will persist in the case of a chronic infection. The qual- qualitative RNA is a marker of hepatitis D replication. It will be positive in chronic infection. And the quantitative RNA um, will be, is useful to monitor treatment response, but unfortunately it's not readily available and the assays are not uniform. The hepatitis B surface antigen can be mon- useful to monitor treatment response if the RNA quantitative values are not available. Basically the decreasing titer in surface antigen will often herald surface antigen loss and hepatitis D clearance, although surface antigen loss is very rare in treatment. And as I mentioned before, hepatitis B DNA is usually negative or low in chronic hepatitis delta infection because the B is being suppressed by the delta. And then finally, ALT uh, usually goes up with infection and stays elevated, but the degree of elevation correlates poorly with histology. The mainstay of treatment for hepatitis delta is pegylated interferon for at least 48 weeks. Conventional interferon can be used as well i just highlight the most recent and the largest study from the New England Journal in 2011. 90 patients were randomized to receive peglated interferon with or without a Defivir or a Defivir alone for 48 weeks. And then uh, their virologic response was checked six months after. So this is a six-month SVR. And as you can see, nobody responded to a Defivir. Uh, The oral nucleoside or nucleotide agents really are not effective against hepatitis delta because the delta virus doesn't have its own viral enzymes for replication. It uses the host enzymes, so there isn't sort of a viral enzyme target for an oral agent. Um, For the pegylated interferon arms, both were, were fairly equivalent. Overall, the response was about 28%. So this really is all we have to offer our patients right now, and unfortunately, it's suboptimal with response rates less than 30%. I will mention there's an ongoing trial of pegylated interferon with or without tenofovir for two years. 120 patients have been randomized to this trial. And the, the thought is that some patients take a long time to respond. So a longer duration of treatment might be valuable to these patients. That trial is ongoing. The week 48 data was presented at ASLD last year, and the hepatitis D RNA levels in the dual therapy arm was 42%, and in the monotherapy arm was 34%. But we're still awaiting the final results of that trial. And finally, there is a phase 2 trial of a prenylation inhibitor that's currently enrolling at the NIH. So here's an algorithm for managing hepatitis delta virus. In a patient who has chronic B uh, infection you should check an anti-hepatitis d igg antibody if that's positive then you can check the hepatitis d rna the qualitative is sufficient here if it's positive then they have chronic hepatitis d co-infection and you would want to do a liver biopsy to stage their disease because as i mentioned the levels of alt elevations don't correlate well with histology and co-infection is associated with a much more severe disease progression Then based on the liver biopsy results and the individual patient characteristics, you need to weigh the risks and the benefits of treating with interferon and consider treatment. Uh, Treatment course is at least 48 weeks. If the individual is also infected, triply infected with hepatitis C, which does occur, um, you would want to add ribavirin to the treatment. And I mentioned that in most cases, the hepatitis B DNA is low in the setting of hepatitis delta. If it it does happen to be elevated over 2000, then you would consider adding a potent uh, oral nucleoside or nucleotide analog in addition to the interferon. And the minority of patients that do clear the hepatitis delta you can have a, a situation where they get reactivation of their hepatitis B, because the Delta had been suppressing the hepatitis B replication. If that happens, first of all, you need to look for that. And second of all, if it does happen, you just add uh, oral um, nucleotide or nucleoside analog. So moving on to our last viral hepatitis, hepatitis E, another question for you. Which of the following is a true statement of hepatitis E virus? One, it causes an acute but not chronic hepatitis. Two, pegylated interferon and ribavirin are approved agents for treating severe hepatitis E virus. Or three, it can lead to cirrhosis in immunocompromised hosts. Okay, so equally divided between acute uh, between number one and number three, so when most of us were were trained in um, medicine, we were taught that hepatitis E causes acute infection like A and it does not go on to cause chronic hepatitis and We have learned in recent years that 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 understanding is actually understanding is actually not true; it can cause a chronic hepatitis, which I will discuss more. And in fact, in patients with chronic hepatitis E, almost all of whom are immunocompromised, it can lead to a rapid progression of cirrhosis. So hepatitis E virus is a single-stranded, non-enveloped RNA virus of the Hepviridae family. It enters the hepatocyte via an unknown mechanism. Five genotypes have been identified, the first four of which infect humans. Hepatitis E is endemic in multiple Asian and African countries, and the areas that are, are highlighted here are the areas where more than 25% of sporadic non A, non B, and non C hepatitis is due to hepatitis E virus. And similarly, the genotype distribution of hepatitis E varies geographically. So genotype 1 is most common, is the most common genotype in Asia, genotype 2 in Central America and Africa and genotype three in the United States. Genotype four is also seen in Eastern Europe and Asia. And this will be important when we talk about the different forms of hepatitis E. So the classic epidemic hepatitis E virus that I learned about in medical school um, is due to genotypes one or two disease. And this is uh, the most common cause of acute hepatitis in endemic areas. There's no known animal reservoir. So this is a human virus. It's transmitted fecal-orally, and it's associated with large waterborne outbreaks. It typically occurs in adolescents and young adults. And clinically, it's associated with a high rate of jaundice and cholestasis. And the other thing that they really hammered in in medical school is the high fatality rate among pregnant women who are, have acute hepatitis E. So you might recall that. So this is the hepatitis E that you want to consider if your patient has an acute hepatitis and recently return from travel to an endemic area so somebody who returned from india during monsoon season for example the autochthonous hepatitis e is that refers to the hepatitis e that's acquired here in the united states or in other western countries and that's due to genotypes three or four in the u.s it's due to genotype three this typically causes a transient, anecteric, and asymptomatic clinical course. In fact, we didn't think hepatitis E really occurred much in the United States until recently when prevalent, seroprevalence uh, studies showed that a very substantial proportion of the population actually has hepatitis E, IgG, but they never presented with any clinical symptoms. In this case, as opposed to the epidemic version of hepatitis E, fatality rate is not increased in pregnant women, and this this hepatitis E can become chronic in immunocompromised patients. So you wanna consider genotype three hepatitis E in patients who have unexplained hepatitis, particularly if they're older, particularly older men, solid organ transplant recipients, and individuals with HIV infection as well as patients who have acute decompensation of chronic liver disease. And we're now understanding that at least a a small proportion of patients that have unknown unexplained hepatitis that gets attributed to a drug-induced liver injury, a small percentage of them actually had acute hepatitis E. In terms of transmission, unlike genotypes one and two, which don't have animal reservoirs, genotypes three and four do. The the main reservoir is, is swine, in fact and the humans are just sort of an accidental host. There have been individual case reports and small outbreaks linked to zoonotic spread, so case reports from undercooked deer, undercooked pig liver, and shellfish. And hepatitis E RNA has actually been isolated in commercially available pig liver and sausage, which is lovely to think about. There also have been case reports linking hepatitis E to blood transfusions and donated organs, but actually most patients have no specific risk factors. In terms of the clinical course of acute hepatitis E, there's about a three to eight week incubation period, during which time RNA can be detected in the stool or in the serum. Um, after eight weeks, uh, symptoms develop if they develop and are usually accompanied by a rise of ALT. And that's when the hepatitis E IgM becomes uh, apparent as well. The IgM will, say, will persist for months and then with resolution um, goes down and the IgG can persist for years. In terms uh, uh, terms of clinical practice for diagnosing acute hepatitis E, the hepatitis E IgM is commercially available, although it's not formally approved by the FDA, and sensitivity and specificities of the assays vary widely, but you can order it for your patients. The confirmatory test is the hepatitis E RNA, and as I'll mention uh, later, in patients who are immunocompromised, the, the IgG and IgM may be falsely negative, so if you suspect hepatitis E in those patients, you want to confirm with RNA levels, which unfortunately is not commercially available, but if you want to test it, you can contact the NIH or Dr. Kenneth Sherman in Ohio will perform uh, the test in in his lab. I want to speak briefly about acute hepatitis E and HIV, because this really sort of hit the radar about five years ago, around the time when case reports were coming out in case series of hepatitis E and solid organ transplantation. So in 2008, there was a first case report of hepatitis E as a newly identified cause of acute viral hepatitis and HIV infection. Another case report also that same year, hepatitis E and jaundice in an HIV-positive pregnant woman. These were all genotype 3. And again in 2009, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, acute hepatitis E in an HIV-infected person in the, in the United States. And then in in 2009, Dr. Dalton and colleagues reported the first case of chronic hepatitis E virus in a patient with HIV infection. This had, around the same time, been reported in solid organ transplant recipients, and this was the first case in HIV. The clinical scenario was a 48-year-old man with HIV since 2001. He started antiretroviral therapy... In January of 2007, his CD4 count was quite low at that time, and his ALT was elevated to 51, although hep A, B, and C serologies were negative. Despite starting antiretroviral therapy, his ALT remained elevated for two years. So this took him to around 2009, when these case reports were coming out about hepatitis E and immunocompromised hosts. And so his providers checked his serum and feces for hepatitis eRNA, and it was detectable. They actually had stored specimens from 18 months prior, and they went back and looked at his stool and his serum from that time point, and the RNA was positive then. So clearly this was a case of chronic infection. And I just wanted to point out that at the 18-month prior time point, they tested the reposited serum for IgG and IgM using two different assays, and in one case it was positive, in one case it was negative. Sort of underscores the variability and the sensitivity of the different tests. So to review in chronic infection, um, hepatitis E RNA is positive in the stool and in the plasma, and it remains persistently positive. ALT levels usually rise and then stay elevated. And IgG typically goes up and stays elevated, but it can be negative in advanced immunosuppression. And in many of the case reports of chronic infection and hepatitis, of hepatitis E and HIV, the IgG was negative. So if you are concerned that your patient with HIV could have chronic hepatitis E, you really need to check the RNA for a confirmatory test. And as I mentioned, with the question stem, this is associated with a rapid development of cirrhosis. And that's been demonstrated in solid organ transplant recipients as well as um, HIV-infected individuals. Cirrhosis can develop within two to three years. But the good news is that in patients that are successfully treated, post-treatment liver biopsies demonstrate a reduction in inflammation and fibrosis. So how do you treat chronic hepatitis E? Most of our experience has been in solid organ transplantation. In that case, reduction of immunosuppression will lead to spontaneous clearance in about a third, and then in the remaining two-thirds, some combination of ribavirin monotherapy or peg interferon monotherapy or the combination of dual therapy leads to clearance in most cases. In HIV-infected individuals, they are not likely to spontaneously clear, even if they experience immune reconstitution with antiretroviral therapy. There have been a handful of case reports of successful treatment with pegylated interferon with or without ribavirin or with ribavirin monotherapy, but there have been no established guidelines or approved regimens for this. So to summarize, hepatitis B is the leading cause of cirrhosis worldwide. Hepatitis Delta causes accelerated liver disease progression and chronic hepatitis E infection can lead to rapid development of cirrhosis. Reliable antibody assays and molecular tests for hepatitis delta and hepatitis E are needed so that we can better identify our patients who are infected and monitor treatment response. And finally, um, I think I've demonstrated that pegylated interferon continues to have a role in viral hepatitis even as we move away from pegylated interferon with hepatitis C treatment. So we can take our our test um, if it's working. So, the actual answer is that hepatitis E can be transmitted via consumption of pig liver. So, this was sort of a trick question. The hepatitis D virus requires the, the surface antigen, not the DNA, for packaging and transmission.
0: Yes? No, please use the microphone. Thank you very much. <laughs> Dr. Price, can you take a seat because yes. um, Dr. Kim has to do his famous machine? Oh.
1: Yes. Does the interferon marker have anything to do with response to therapy for these, for these viruses as well? To my knowledge, that hasn't been studied. But that's a, that's a good question.
0: Uh, in the first case, the patient was undetectable for two years on th- uh, lamivudine. How could she have developed resistance when fully suppressed?
1: So you, you, even when the DNA is undetectable, you never truly clear the hepatitis B virus, so there's still low levels in the liver. And... Um, mutations can, can emerge in that context.
0: Um, in a person who is anti-HDV IgG positive, is that person immune to Delta? So if you have the antibody, are you immune or are you infected? I don't
1: know the answer to that. <laughs> That's a good question. Do yes, you, know you do. Answer? Yeah, you're infected. Well, no, if they're IgG positive and they've cleared.
0: Oh, if they've cleared, but I don't think it's a marker of clear. It's not. A, it's not like surface antibodies. Well, it's
1: a marker. You c- it can stay persistently positive d- despite viral clearance. It it often will re- will will wane over time. Um, so it's either a marker of it's a marker of prior exposure, and you have to check the DNA the RNA to see if you're chronically infected. So in those that, whose RNA is negative and the antibody is positive, I don't they've, know, cleared. That yeah. they've cleared, and I actually don't know if that... Is if negative. they can become
0: infected again. <laughs> you know? I don't know the answer. Post-transplant, I've had patients who have lost delta but still have antibody, and I periodically check RNA, but when their surface antigen's negative, it won't be an issue. And does chronic hep E incorporate in the host DNA or is it a plasmid like Hep C? It's RNA, right?
1: It's RNA. So it must Yeah, be. it must be in the plasmid. Yeah. Yeah. So to our knowledge, it does not incorporate into the host DNA.
0: So does that mean we can never, just as well California can't uh, ban foie gras, right? Because we can never <laughs> eat it again. It has, everything has to be overcooked.
1: It should be overcooked, but there's also, you know, there's also concern that um, runoff and uh, the water irrigation has, uh, in, in some cases, tested positive for hepatitis E. So soft fruits that, um, that have been washed with with water that, that is hepatitis E positive can um, carry the virus. So that's probably the reason why so many people, um, there are a lot more people who have e- e- experienced exposure than would be explained by people who eat pig liver or, or pig at all. Um, it's certainly higher in pay, people who have exposures and in veterinarians and in pig farmers, but that doesn't explain all of the exposure.
0: And I had a question about I wasn't at EASL, but I heard that there was a big discussion about happy e in older men who weren't HIV positive.
1: So and older being 50, so
0: immunologically <laughs> older.
1: So, so I'm not sure what the discussion is, but the was but the um, autochthonous hepatitis E it does present clinically more commonly in older men over 50. It's not clear what the what the reason for that is. Some speculation is that they are more likely to have had a larger exposure, um, but I think that's all speculation at this point. But it's it's certainly something to consider in an older man who has a, a an acute hepatitis or a acute on chronic hepatitis for really unclear etiology um, and we should be looking for it more than we, than we really do.
0: I have a patient who has hep B and HIV co-infection. His hep B
1: viral load is running more than a million. His antiviral therapy includes tenofovir. His adherence is less than ideal and uh, intermittent at best yet when I did uh, hep B virus um, drug resistance, came back totally sensitive to tenofovir. How do we explain that when he's, you know, his viral load's not responding and his intermittent uh, adherence, I would think some resistance to tenofovir would develop. So thus far uh, uh, resistance um, in the hepatitis B polymerase has not been an issue with tenofovir. In that case, I've, you know, I don't know if it's an issue of, of just compliance. It's also more, diff- if he's in the immune-tolerant stage of disease and has very high uh, hepatitis B DNA levels, it's harder to treat those patients. Um, so I'm not sure if that would explain why his uh, uh, virus hasn't responded, but it, it sounds like the compliance is the bigger issue. Um, but it does have a very high uh, barrier to resistance, which is why it's appealing. E-
0: even with intermittent mm-hmm. dosing? But if anybody ever was going to become resistant, it'd be that patient. Yes. So he's testing the hypothesis that you can't get it. There's a question: Do you screen all your Hep B patients for Delta?
1: Um, I do. Um, I think the ASLD guidelines uh, recommend screening patients who um, are at higher risk of hepatitis Delta, so from areas of higher um, and where it's more where it's endemic. or patients with HIV. But I, I screen everybody, actually, because we do see it.
0: We have a big Mongolian community in San Francisco, and hepatitis D is endemic in the hepatitis B patients there. And also in ID, um, IV drug users, hepatitis D I've seen. Yes, go ahead. Um, so I thought that... I, I've been told that you should use, try to get hepatitis uh, delta viral loads, quantitative, to, and to, if you're going to treat, to see if the response, since the response is only 25%. Are, are you, I mean, I'm not sure where the barrier is to getting hep delta quants. I mean, and I guess you sounds like you guys are treating without that. You're just doing it presumptively on one in four chance that it might respond.
1: Yeah, we don't have access to the quants. So, and, and, sure and when you say it.
0: it's 25% response, is that long-term? or? I, I thought that there was an issue with you treat it and it goes away for a year and then comes back a few years later.
1: So actually in the, the 2001 New England Journal article, the end of treatment response was around 25%, and then the SVR was um, actually around 28%. So there were, there were some patients that actually cleared in that six months after end of, end of treatment. Um, I think that the reoccurrence is a little, little bit less of a concern that is a concern with hepatitis E. I forgot the other part of your question already. But
0: you can get RNA send-outs to LabCorp or Quest. So they'll give you positive, negative. Mm-hmm. What you can't get by paying for it is the RNA level. And that's what Dr. Price said. So if yeah. you want a level, you have to go to a research You have to have a friend in a research lab who'll do it for you. But you can get, we use positive or negative. So at three months, if you're still positive, we stop. Sorry for the dumb question, but does hepatitis D uh, consistently have ALT elevations then?
1: It, it typically does uh, cause ALT elevations because there's typically ongoing um, uh, hepatocyte injury. So that should not be always. St- it doesn't correlate with histology, so you shouldn't use ALT as a um, reason to decide whether or not to treat or reason to decide. Well, it's a matter adapt, to treat but, whether to get a D or not is is the question. I mean, should I be getting – I guess you you kind of answered. All Bs need a D. I check D and all Bs. Yeah. <laughs> but is that? you know is that community or is that in your research I mean you know so can, can you know you, the the guidelines I'm are... in a prison by the way so I can get it if I want it's <laughs> your expense by the way <laughs> <All right. laughs> if you're in a population at higher risk of of, D, of Delta you know IV drug users whatever your population is then you have justification for checking it you just have to check it once Thanks. thank
0: you very much Dr. Price for an excellent and enlightening discussion.